Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SEP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Hey, we've got a uh, special rebroadcast today. Joining me is Mr. Chris Schinkel, repeat guest on the show. How are you doing, Chris? Good. Chris is our uh, director of innovation for anybody that is not aware of that and is kind of our resident thought leader, public speaker, and uh, agile junkie. That's a good way of thinking about it, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> we'll go with that. Well, hey, we're going to kind of do a little bit of a setup for um, an SEP Talks, which is uh, something we do maybe once a quarter-ish. Uh, in our most recent talk, uh, we actually had a guest speaker, Jeff Patton, who was kind of a friend of the show. And it was actually our most popular SCP Talks event, I think, to date. We had roughly 300-plus people that attended this. Right. Um, you know, Chris, you've known Jeff for a long time. You've also given these talks. What do you think it is about Jeff and Jeff Jeff Patton, the, the author of User Story Mapping is who we're talking about? What do you think it is? about him that, you know, draws a crowd and, and gets such a following around building products. Yeah, I think Jeff has a great reputation in the industry, uh, especially the agile community, and is just known for bringing fresh, new, insightful information. He works with a lot of clients and he's always working, pushing himself, learning new things, figuring out better ways to say it, better ways to communicate these ideas around product you know, Agile talks a lot about sort of process and design talks about its little niche and, and product. But Jeff does a great job of pulling these together. And I think matches that where a lot of companies are struggling or things are looking for. And so it just ends up being this this great fit. So he's got a great reputation. People know and love him. And then the way he presents is just really appealing. It sort of draws you in. You know, Jeff, still even a virtual hand draws all mm-hmm. of his slides, so to speak, and just has this sort of, uh, you see the story, the the message, the content sort of evolve throughout the presentation. I think he just does a great job of drawing you in and making sure the the content is relevant that, that people love. Jeff used to always tell me when I first started speaking at, at conferences, he would say, you need to entertain to inform and you need to inform to enlighten in that order, mm. you know, entertain, inform, enlighten. And, uh, I think Jeff over the years has just done a great job of mastering the craft and leaning into that. He's definitely entertaining. Yeah. Always informing and you can't help but walk away with some new ideas, some new concepts that you can start to apply in your organization. Uh, I mean, that is, I've never heard that. I love that. I feel like that's a tweetable quote. That needs to be uh, uh, on Jeff Patton's Twitter feed. I love that. And actually, that's a, a good uh, quick note. You know, there are a lot of visuals related to this talk. So if you find yourself listening to the podcast version of this and, and want to see a little bit more about what Jeff is talking about, there's a link in the show description to go watch the video. You're right. The, the, the cool part about uh, the way that Jeff presents rather than looking at a static slide or even a progression of slides, he's he's evolving the narrative visually right. as he's going. And then when it's done, it's like, oh, wow, that's like a complete picture that I have a mental model for. 
it is really slick, actually. Right. It's very sub- almost subversive psychology in some ways. Uh, I think you walk away remembering more yeah. of, of what was presented at, uh, instead of looking at a static slide. So, okay, uh, Jeff works with companies all over the world. Why did he come give a talk for us? Yeah, it's interesting, Jeff. Uh, he he gets a lot of ex- exposure and experience working with different companies, but the his clients, the people he works with, um, he might see them a week at a time and then be gone for a while and then a week at a time and, and then gone for a while. And so he doesn't oftentimes get to see the full story of what he teaches, how they apply it, how it evolves over time. Um, we, on the other hand, live that with our clients. We, we definitely see that and see the things we've tried or where we, we've taken Jeff's ideas and brought them into a client's and seen where they may have not worked well or uh, context needed to be adjusted to to really apply them or, or, or get value out of them. And so Jeff and I routinely will get together just to compare notes. For, through his eyes, I get to see and hear about a lot of different organizations and things they're trying and applying and thinking differently about product. Through my eyes, Jeff gets to see and hear sort of the the more detailed story and nuanced version of the the different characters or or people involved in this sort of you know play if you can use that metaphor yeah and see then how that evolves over time and so it's it's just a great uh, great chance to to compare notes and the last time him and I were talking and he was sharing with me a little bit about some more recent clients I felt like that story what he was talking about had just come up with three or four clients of ours that I had worked with. And so just ask Jeff, Hey, would you consider taking that message and sharing it? I think the timing is right. And I think our clients need to hear this message, this, this idea. Um, and of course, Jeff's just a great guy. He was willing to, to do that for us. And you, and you can see by the the results, I mean, the number of people that attended, uh, I think the, the message and the content aligned well with, uh, our clients. Yeah, I, I think so. And it was, it was, um, one of my favorite talks, uh, in a while. And I, i I thoroughly enjoyed it and walked away with a couple new things to think about and, uh, stuff to noodle on. So it's, uh, it's always valuable. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I appreciate you, uh, helping to kind of set this one up and no, happy to do it. Yeah. And I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the, uh, the audio version of this talk. And like I said, if you would like to go check out the video version, go check out the link in the description. Otherwise we'll see you next time. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here. My name is Jeff Patton. Chris already introduced me. Uh, Well, I'm not sure where to start. I don't know if I need to give myself any more introduction. I need to talk about product thinking. Product thinking is, is is a thing. It's become bigger and bigger. I want to talk about what a product mindset is and what it means to have one and what it means not to have one because there's a kind of a competitive way of thinking that gets in the way a lot. So I want to talk about that. So look, I've got, I wanted to point out, yes, it is a thing. I, if you do a quick Google search on, on product thinking, you're going to find books, you're going to find articles, you're going to find lots of people that are talking about this stuff. I've got a couple things I need to talk about. What we focus on when we are building successful products, what we focus on instead of that. And then to make this a little bit actionable, I want to give you a few things that you can do about it.
I've got three things, but I want to watch time. I want to make sure that we've got time for Q&A here. So we'll see how this goes. Now, talk about product thinking. We need to talk about products. If we were all in a big room and I was talking to you, I would ask you, what makes a product great? Or when I say great product, what comes to mind? Now, I'm going to switch over here. Look, I've asked this question an awful lot, and I'm used to used to getting some consistent answers. So I'm going to say them for you. I get things like it solves a problem. Um, my brain is a little bit slower today. It's easy to use. Uh, it's delightful. It's, uh, look, I use it every day. It's reliable. Things like it makes my life better. And I'll think about what you would say. Uh, those are the kinds of things you hear. Now, if you were a company that makes a product and I ask you what makes one of the products you make great, uh, they'll say things like, well, it, it makes money. Uh, it's, it, you know, customers pay and renew. If we're paying, paying attention to monthly recurring revenue or annual recurring revenue, and it's, well, easy uh, to sell. Uh, it helps our reputation. All right. Now, look, I'm used to doing this and as many times as I've done this, never, not once has anybody said finished on time or finished under budget because those aren't qualities that make a product great. Look, what we spend a lot of time thinking about when we are building products, and when I say products, uh, I have to say I'm thinking of software products. Hardware products are a bit different. Uh, it's a little bit more, a lot more time put into design and manufacturing, but I'm going to talk about software for a minute. Look, if we've got an idea for a product, we want to turn that into something we can ship. Now, the, the idea could be for a whole new product, but a characteristic of contemporary technology products is that they can, well, they continuously change. With a traditional product, I'm looking out in the hall, I can see my coffee machine. It's got a whole bunch of features. If I replace, look, if the coffee, coffee machine manufacturer comes up with better features, they've got to design a new coffee machine and I have to get rid of mine and replace it. But that's not the case with a contemporary software product. You're watching me through Zoom right now and there is no cool new version of Zoom coming out. Rather, Zoom continuously upgrades or continuously improves. It, it continu continuously adds new features or capabilities. Those are the things in software development that we start referring to as our requirements. If you're building a step or living, you worry about the time it's going to take to turn those products, features, capabilities into, into, into working software. You worry about the cost. When we talk about software, cost is usually taken up by people and lots of people time. So how many people is going to take over time? And then, you know, we call this stuff scope. If you've been involved with about anything and any kind of project, you're aware of this time, cost, and scope triangle. You already know it is the bad news triangle, but there is no good news here. There's a general rule of thumb that you can have only two, uh, meaning if you fix time and scope, then the bad news is, the cost is going to go up. You fix time and cost, and the bad news is the scope is going to go down. And you really insist on fixing time, cost, and scope. I want to know what I can get, what it's going to cost me, how long it's going to take. The bad news is there's not three things, there's four. The fourth one is quality. Fixed time, cost, and scope, and quality squeezes out. That's the way this works. This sucks. But oddly, none of this stuff is the stuff that matters. What matters actually is what you're uh, your customers 
and users. Well, it's what they do, what they say, and how they feel. These are the kinds of things that they would do and say. If we release a, a product, a new feature or capability, what we hope is that uh, people will see it and, and choose to try it. We hope that they will use it. Uh, we hope that they keep using it. And we hope that they say good things. Now, if we're building a product for internal use or a business-to-business -business product, sometimes we don't have to worry so much about whether they will use it or keep using it. They have to. It's their job. I used to build software for chain brick-and-mortar retailers. Point of sale was one of the things that we built. And I didn't have to worry about whether cashiers would use it because if they didn't, they'd get fired. Uh, so that's taken care of for me. I cannot make them say good things. And the other things we look at, the other behavior we look at is whether they are more efficient, meaning they get more work done faster. They're more effective. Uh, they do better work, make fewer errors. If Look, if you release a product and these things don't happen, that's a fail. Now, what will matter to you if you're inside your organization? Let's talk about your organization. Your organization has a different responsibility than your customers. Uh, well, now look, your organization has a responsibility to, to sustain itself. And it does not sustain itself with happy people. It sustains, it sustains itself with cash. So if, if you ship a new product and people see it, try it, use it, and keep using it, and somewhere along the line here, they pay for it or they renew that's when we see return on investment. If you're building something for internal use and your people become more efficient and more effective, that lowers the costs or makes your company a bit better. That's uh, that, that the ROA comes from there for those kinds of things. If lots of people say good things, this is going to help our brand and brand awareness or brand sentiment, our reputation. And then uh, finally, if, if our product is easy to sell and people tell each other and we keep keep selling us this helps our position in, in the market we get more of the market we sell more of our products i want you to notice that well what matters to our customers and users is not what matters to us uh, our customers aren't so worried about our, our, our ROI or brand awareness or market share. And look, if your company is building this stuff, we pay an awful lot of attention to well, this stuff in the middle. That's what matters to us. There's a value exchange going on here. We build a product, we spend money building that product, and then our customers turn the money we spent back into more money. That's the way it works. But it's really up to them to turn it into more money, not us. Now, I need to work backwards from this. Ideas, ideas do not come from thin air. Uh, they also come from customers uh, and users. They come from identifying their problems or I'm gonna say unmet needs because things like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter do not solve problems. Sometimes they create problems, but things like that cater to needs or desires that we've got. We wanna be social, we want to uh, share things with friends, we want to be popular. Uh, those are all needs. And look, we come up with products and features that help us well solve those problems and deal with those unmet needs. That's where the ideas come from. And then if I work all the way backwards, let's start at your organization again. Remember, your organization needs to sustain itself. It needs some cash to do that. And most organizations obligate themselves to grow. 
Uh, I've worked with a lot of organizations and if they make quarterly projections, I've never seen anyone that makes quarterly projections that shows that they are shrinking over time. Uh, they they want to grow. We've got people inside the organization, we call those stakeholders or business stakeholders, whose responsibility is to make sure the organization is sustaining itself and growing and moving towards its vision and act, executing on its strategy. And if the organization isn't growing, isn't executing well on its strategy, this results in uh, well a business problem. So that's the next thing. Look, I want you to notice that the problems your business have are not the same as the problems your customers and users have. Your customers and users are not laying awake at night worried that you are not meeting your financial objectives. So look, if we're talking about product thinking, what matters most is the stuff that usually happens outside our building. It's the stuff that well, our customers and users do and say, either do and say right now or do and say in the future. I draw this model over and over because I want to label the parts. It's everything between the idea and the delivery that is output. We worry an awful lot about how long that stuff takes, but again, what matters is what happens when things come out. That is called outcome because of that. And I want to separate, you know, some people call everything on the right-hand side here, outcome. I want to separate the, you know, what your customers do from the benefit you get. I'm going to, well, this stuff is called impact or business impact. Look, it's output that results in outcome and good outcomes that result in business impact. Bad outcomes result in negative business impact. You're going to get a business impact no matter what you do here. This language system of output, outcome, and impact has been around a long time. I'm just making sure it's in your vocabulary. I'm going to work backwards here. I'm going to call these problems and unmet needs that people have opportunities. And uh, look, I'll stick with business problems here. So the weird thing is you don't solve business problems with software. If your business has a problem, it needs to track down a customer that has an unmet need or a problem and then build something. And then our customers have to do something so that we can then solve that business problem. Everything hinges on that. Being product-centric means moving your focus to, well, outcomes and, well, the opportunities there. And those are the things that enable you to make money. I work with a lot of teams that uh, build products and they don't pay particular attention or, or sometimes fail to pay attention to what their customers and users, but well, their problems and what they're doing. So let's see if I can summarize this. Outcomes are what your customers do and say and feel. They're not what you do. Business impact comes as a consequence of what those customers do. And well, look, we need to deliver quality products predictably, but product success is not driven by that. That's table stacks. All right, let's talk about an alternative way of thinking, an alternative product model. This is the one that I see play out in most organizations. It's embedded in organizations. It's in, well, let, let's talk about that. Now, this is going to seem like a non sequitur, but I promise you it is relevant. This is my backyard, or it was my backyard last year. I live in a place called Park City, Utah. Uh, it's a little bit east of Salt Lake City. It's high in the mountains. There's lots of ski resorts here. It's where the Sundance Film Festival is held every year, except for the last couple of years because it keeps getting canceled. But I've been in this place for about 10 years. 
my backyard is big. It's filled with trees, but it's, it's a high altitude desert here. The, the soil is terrible. It's mostly rocky and things die. We can't get things. Uh, the grass dies every year. We've been here a long time and we decided we want to take care of this steep, rocky, crappy backyard. So we hired a landscaper. They came in with earth moving equipment. They tore the deck, big deck off the back of the house because we needed to bring in some stone and replace it with, well, with, with a stone patio. Decks start to be a fire hazard around here. We had lots of trees pulled out. And our goal was to get this all this stuff finished before the end of the summer. And we didn't. Uh, the, the snow fell and there's still work left to do. Now, Look, uh, this is Troy. Troy is the landscaper we hired. And I want to talk about the landscaping business for a minute. Look, if I were to say great landscaper, what comes to mind? Now, again, I've done this thing a lot of times. You can shout things out. I'm not going to hear you. Uh, but let's look. First thing I hear is things like he shows up. And don't underrate that. If you've ever hired somebody to do this kind of stuff, that matters a lot. We look for people that are reliable, that uh, that have a good reputation. We we want them. Ideally, they have customer referrals. Their customers are saying good things uh, about them. I look for expertise, particularly where I live. I need people that understand planting and building and doing stuff at high altitude where I live. And I want them to work with me. I, it's their job to turn my vision in, into uh, reality. They, I, ideally make them better. Uh, while this project is going on, I expect them to be a good communicator. And uh, look, uh, they need to be cost effective. Uh, I, I always get suspicious when somebody is the very cheapest, but I always get anxious when somebody is the most expensive. And you know, finally, I hope that they deliver um, you know, as close to on time as possible. Now, we didn't finish this year, partly because we didn't count on COVID and losing team members and lots of other complications, so supply chain problems, things like that. This may seem obvious. I'm going to uh, show a few more obvious things here. I want to explain how the landscaping business works. Look, this is me. Uh, I'm a customer. And look, I have a, a need and, you know, I can't fulfill it myself. I, I can't do that work. Uh, I don't have all the equipment. I don't have the expertise. Uh, so I'm going to need to find somebody that I can hire. In this case, it's a landscaper. I found Troy. He's got a team of people and lots of equipment. I'm not going to draw the equipment. But the first thing I do is explain to him what I am thinking. It's his job to listen and try and understand. He will suggest things. So that goes two ways. And then ultimately, we need to agree because he needs to figure out how he's going to do this, how long it's going to take, how much it's going to cost. And ultimately, I'm, well, he gives me an estimate. He, he did give me an estimate. And this is always where I throw a WTF exception, where, my gosh, I, I know I've given him a bit of a budget. And he went up to that budget and passed it. And I'm shocked at how little I get for my budget. This stuff cost a lot. I didn't have the expertise. I didn't know how much it was going to cost. And look, we then 
And this always happens. We go into this back and forth process of negotiation. Now, while I'm doing this, I'm thinking to myself, I want to save money. I want to, well, uh, to get more for my money. And while Troy's doing this, he's thinking to himself, I need to make money. I've got people to pay. I've got equipment to maintain. I've got cash flow to maintain. I've got to buy all this stuff. Uh, so I can't give this stuff away, but I do need to keep my customer happy. So we're not exactly on the same page, but uh, we eventually get there. We eventually agree. I put an order in, give him some money to start this job. It's his job to do the work. And while he's doing the work, he fo focuses on what we agreed to do, that scope stuff. He focuses on time, not just because I want my stuff done, but because he's got other projects running and uh, equipment that needs to be in different places and uh, stuff to order and needs to get there on time. He's got a complex project management job here, and he focuses on costs. Again, cost for people, cost for equipment, cost for other things. And I hope somewhere on here he is focusing on quality. But I can't see it. I'm not an expert. I wouldn't know. I don't know until things break down years later. So I hope that's being baked in. And hopefully the, the good reputation he has is uh, is uh, uh, he, he earned that. Look, at some point in time, he gives back a delivery. Now, that's still to come. We've got more work to do. But that's the way this works. It took a long time to explain that. The landscaping business, but I want you to notice that this should look hauntingly familiar. If I label this top line requirements, I don't know what company you work for, but I can almost guarantee that this is the process that you use too. Now, actually, if I were to look in most organizations, I can label this side the business and uh, most big organizations. I work with banks and insurance companies and retailers and uh, people like that. Uh, they call this side the business and this side IT or tech. But this is not, well, this is tech as a, uh, well, as a custom service. And we expect the business to bring in requirements. We expect to listen and understand if we're tech, uh, we're going to make suggestions. Uh, we're going to give an estimate. If you've been in this role, business is never entirely happy with that. We do this negotiation thing. We finally agree. Maybe there's a business case. There's a project plan. There's a budget that we agree on. And then we get busy and do the work. We focus on time, cost, and scope. And then we eventually turn in a delivery. Now, I'm an agile person. I've been practicing agile development for a long time. And it, it kind of agile development sort of works like this also. In agile development, a process like Scrum, now the person on this side is often called the, the product owner. We expect the product owner to build up a backlog of, of, what, of what the needs are. And a product owner shows up at the beginning of a sprint with the things that are the most important. The team estimates those things. There's some back and forth negotiation. We finally agree on what goes in the sprint and we finalize that. Let's call that the order. And during the sprint, the team does the work. They focus on, well, we, we fix the time. A sprint is usually two weeks. We fix the cost, uh, which is, uh, well, the size of the team. And Scrum is kind of evil. Uh, the team sort of fixes scope on itself in what they agree to in the planning part. And hopefully along the way, everybody's focusing on quality. At the end of the sprint, there's a delivery and we evaluate the, that quality and look at how we've done. When we're looking at the way this kind of process works, 
Uh, it kind of hangs out right here in the middle, but this is where project management lives. If we're talking about product management, product management is end, uh, end to end. The scope is just bigger. Now, a quirky thing about quirky thing about project management is, look, we really want to get as much as we can for that budget. The, the big problem with product management is this idea thing. There's always too many ideas. And the other big problem is most of these ideas suck or won't work out. You know, if you had an idea for a whole new product, if you were going to found a tech startup, I could ask you what the failure rate for tech startups is. And most people would know yeah, it's high. It's about 90%. Uh, so the odds of coming up with a product that will actually, well, that people will see it, try to use it and say good things uh, are, well, and enough to sustain an organization. Those are pretty low. Now, when it comes to features and capabilities, that's also a bit of a challenge. It's hard to know whether those features we put in our product are used. There's not as much data on those, but we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the majority of features we put in the product rarely get used at the rate that we thought or expected. This is a challenge. If it feels like, because there's so much to build that you should be building more stuff faster. But in fact, when you're in product development, your job is to build less. It's to minimize this output at the same time that we maximize this outcome and impact stuff. That's where the return on this investment comes from. Uh, it's, well, it's, doing, <laughs> it's doing as little as we can and making as much as we can. The other word for all this stuff over here, by the way, is called value. So uh, that's a kind of a big difference. Now, it's a big difference because we're trying to do as much as we can over here and as little as we can over there. But the reason this works really well for Troy is because he makes money. And in this business model, we don't make money selling a product. Well, in fact, the, the service he provides is the product. Uh, Troy actually sells time and materials. So when he's got too much work to do, he celebrates. He can hire people. And as long as he can hire people, the more people he has, the more money he makes. He's marking up their time. If it's hard, it is hard to hire people these days. But one of the things that Troy does, I know he does it because he's done it to me, is raise prices because, uh, well, that makes him look more popular and the customers that can't afford him go away. And the other thing that Troy can do is say no uh, or not now. We had to book Troy a year ahead to get his time. All these things work when your business is selling time and materials or your business is a service. None of those things work when you're negotiating internally inside your organization with your business, because your business likely does not make money selling your time and materials. Now, one other quirky thing about this one is this model separates the people who are responsible for, well, let's call this the product outcomes. And well, these people over here end up being responsible for the, the product output. See if I can uh, convince you of that, and maybe don't need to be convinced of that. If I look at the stuff that uh, Troy did for me, there's a few questionable things in, in my yard. This is a gas fire pit. At great expense, we plumbed gas underneath that underneath that 
rock patio and there's a, a knob i turn a knob on throw a match on there and we get a gas fire year round that's great we can go outside we can mo- uh, host marshmallows and warm our hands in the snow this is going to be awesome except for this year i noticed the snow and back behind our house gets about three three or four feet tall if we're going to do this we're going to have to be doing a lot of snow shoveling and that ain't happening and the, the summers get pretty hot here. So I, I can't imagine we're going to end up using this thing maybe a, a, a few times a year. It's pretty expensive for what we're going to use it. And in hindsight, not such a good idea. This fenced garden area in the back, that's going to be super cool. Uh, there's power back there to plug in tools. There's the great watering there. Uh, there will be raised planter boxes, all kinds of things. But as I think about it, the best gardener in our family is my kid who is off in college now. And I don't know how this is going to go. Uh, this is also a, a dumb idea. Now, at the end of the day, I if I decide I hate gas fire pits, I'm gonna I'm not gonna say Troy sucks because I hate gas fire pits. Uh, that was my responsibility. If I can't garden or my vegetables don't grow, I'm not gonna say Troy's don't hire Troy because I can't grow vegetables or I fail to use my garden area because oh Troy's responsible for filling my vision, not his vision, and Troy's not responsible for the product. Uh, I am. I'm the one who drove that. Troy's responsible for building it. This is a, a quirky thing. What ideally we look for are product teams inside of companies that take responsible for both the output and the outcome and impact. Um, unlike service providers who really shouldn't. We separate those responsibilities. And again, it works for a service provider because their primary responsibility is selling time and materials. Again, if you're doing this inside your organization, that's that's not what you're there for. Now, let's let me talk about a, a couple things. Well, I want to point out this is Troy's product experience. This is product as a service, but for you, it's it's your process. If you mistake your process for your product, if you mistake your business stakeholders for your customers, weird things happen. Uh, here's the uh, uh, first big example. This person is the richest person in the world. His name is Jeff Bezos. He's holding above his head an Amazon Fire Phone. Now, I could ask you if anybody knows what a Fire Phone is, if ever anybody bought one of those things. That thing was built in 2014, and it quickly went onto the market and then right back off the market. The, the it had some kind of cool features. One of those was this dynamic perspective thing where you could turn the phone, twist it any which way, and it would look like, you know, it would look 3D. It would look like it's you're, you're, you're looking at the sides of things. That was supposed to be cool. There were some other cool things in there, and I've, I've forgotten them. Everybody's forgotten them by now because as soon as the product came out, people panned it, reviewers hated it, customers hated it. They sold it at $200. They marked it down to 99 cents. As long as you bought some mobile phone time, they'd give this to you for a buck. But eventually they took it off the market within that year. And that year they wrote down $170 million in unsold fire phones. That's a big mistake. Now there's lots of, lots of articles that describe this, but I'm going to use this this quote from a Fast Company article. We poured surreal amounts of money into it, yet we all thought it had no value for the customer, which was the biggest irony. Whenever anyone asked why we're doing this, the answer was because Jeff wants it. No one thought the feature justified the cost of the project. No one, absolutely no one. 
Now, this is what happens when you mistake your business stakeholder for your customer, because as rich as Jeff is, he cannot buy and use hundreds of thousands of Fire Phones himself. Well, he can afford it, but he just doesn't have enough hands and doesn't have a need. He's not the one the product is for. Uh, So don't mess those things up. Now, there's good reasons why we mistake our business stakeholders for our customers or big good reasons why well, we do what they ask us to and not, not question whether, well, not talk, ask about who the real customers are, what the real problems are. I've got this super old quote from Upton Sinclair. It's difficult to get a person to understand something when their salary depends on their not understanding it. For the people working on that fire phone team, uh, possibly not questioning Jeff, uh, well, questioning Jeff would have been career limiting, at least at the time. Now. Uh, make the key points here. Your business is not your customer. Don't mistake your process for the product. Now, I want to give a counter example. This guy's name is Daniel Eck. He's the CEO of Spotify. And I suspect a few people here use Spotify as a product. It's gotten wildly huge. There's a feature, a really popular feature that came out in Spotify called Discovery Weekly. Now, Discovery Weekly was a list built for you, and now there's a bunch of lists that are built for you. So that feature has kind of been expanded on. We all get uh, discovered. You'll get weekly lists from Spotify. But look, Daniel Eck didn't like that feature. This also from a Fast Company article. I would have killed that if it was just me, 100%. I never really saw the beauty of it. I questioned them, the team building it, two or three times. Are you sure you really want to do this? Why are we spending all this time and energy? There are lots of things in this company that I didn't think were good ideas that turned into some of the best things. Now, this happens when your business stakeholders do start holding teams accountable for outcome and impact. And it's hard to hold somebody accountable for the outcome when you tell them specifically what to do. Now, I've got one last quote from Jeff Bezos to play here. In 2016, Jeff said this in his letter to shareholders, good process serves you so you can serve your customers, but if you're not watchful, the process can become the thing. And while he's referring to people going through the motions, doing what the process tells them to do, but losing focus on what actually matters. All right. I talked about these two models because this is the one that seems to get in the way the most. We treat our business stakeholders as, as, uh, as customers. Our business stakeholders treat us as service providers. And I got to tell you, I'm guilty of this. When I was a product manager, I treated my team as service providers. I told them specifically what to do, and I wanted them to turn my vision into a reality. They never quite understood why we were doing what we're doing. And as a consequence, they didn't take any ownership uh, of the outcomes. I've since learned that if we do this together as a team, I get better things out of it. All right, now I wanna talk about what you can do about this. Let's um, switch over to showing a few slides. I may draw a a picture or two here. Here's what you can do. If if you are working in a business where your governance works like that project thing, if if the biggest concerns inside your business is that you're delivering what you said you would on time and people aren't necessarily looking after the outcomes, I want you to be more like a doctor. Look, here's what I mean. 
if there's a continuum uh, for service providers, and on the, the left side, I, I put the word waiter, and on the right side, I put the word doctor, I want you to behave a lot more like a doctor. These are both service providers. Uh, but look, if you go into a restaurant, uh, the waiter will suggest things to you. You can ask for suggestions. Uh, they'll uh, su suggest appetizers, main courses, uh, main courses that you like. They'll suggest dessert with that. And definitely uh, alcohol to drink because there's a lot of money in that. The happier you are when you leave the restaurant, well, the, better you the better you feel about it. And that's good because restaurants make money selling food and selling selling the, well, the service of, of making the food they provide. What's interesting is in the United States, doctors also make money by, well, the more work they do, the more money they make. But despite that, doctors are good at focusing on outcomes. Try and show up at your doctor's office and giving them your requirements. Tell your doctor, these are the prescriptions I'd like you to write. Uh, this is the operation I'd like you to schedule. The doctor, well, if they have good bedside manner, they will smile and nod and say, that's nice. Tell me where it hurts. When you say outcome to a doctor, they know what you mean. A good medical outcome. Well, the doctor with the best outcomes is not the doctor that writes the most prescriptions the fastest. The doctor with the best outcomes is the, the one with the, the, the healthiest patients. They know what a medical outcome is. So despite being paid for how much work they do, they still manage to focus on the problems that patients have and the, the, the outcomes or whether they're feeling better and thank goodness they do. The, happily, they do because they swear a Hippocratic oath to pay attention to those things. And also, it probably doesn't hurt that they will get sued for malpractice if they don't. For better or worse, uh, uh, well, people operating with this model, uh, there's not a landscaper Hippocratic Oath or a, a technology Hippocratic Oath. So the people who build your software do not swear to uh, pay attention to your outcomes. And uh, there's definitely no malpractice. So look, think that way, focus on being a better doctor. And when you're asked to do something, focus more on the problems you're trying to solve and pay attention to those outcomes. So more like a doctor, less like a waiter. The, the way you go about doing this is being good at reframing. You will be asked always to build features. You may be asking, you may be asking teams that you work with to build features. And one of the things I teach teams to do is to frame a request as a product hypothesis. Here's how a hypothesis works. Or look, here's your reframing script. Script. If someone walks in and says, quick, we need this feature, your job is to back up and say, look, I've got it. Uh, we believe that these particular customers have this particular problem. And if we build that feature you just asked for, that they will well, do something to solve their problem using that feature and get a benefit. And that's going to result in this business impact. A hypothesis statement exposes our beliefs about the problem we're solving, what we're building, the outcome we're going to get, and the business impact is going to result in. Get good at this. And even if you don't know it, if you're the one reframing, I promise you, if you say it wrong, the person asking will correct you. And then you'll know. Reframe to expose the problem, outcome, and impact. Now, if I were to ask somebody to become a more product-centric, there's one thing that always, always works. And that's to go out and actually watch your customers do something. 
these people are with Kodak, and yes, they are still in business. The guy on the right is a product manager for a kiosk you would see in a CVS store because that's where we were when I took this picture. You can bring in your camera or a USB stick or your your phone and plug it in and print out a or get out a high resolution or a, you know a photo quality picture. Guy on the right is the product manager. Person on the left is a user experience person, a designer. Guy behind the guy on the right is one of the engineers from the team. You've probably guessed the short white-haired person on that. Uh, the short white-haired person there is not on their team. She's been trying to get a picture out for the last hour. They watch people work. They stop. They ask them how that went and uh, how the well how this could be better. And often they'll show them prototypes of new ideas. This is called discovery work and teams get out there and do that. Now, look, I've got lots of pictures of people at work. This this guy is a stock portfolio manager and I will spare you the long story, but in working with this organization, we were told specifically not to talk to these people because they are super busy and they do not have time for you. Now, uh, we went down to where they worked and we tried to be unobtrusive and we stood back by the wall and the people that well, were portfolio, ma portfolio managers turned and talked to us and said, what are you guys doing here? We said that we are working on the portfolio management system. They said, oh, that's you guys. Let me show you something. And they started talking to us, showing us things, walking through how they worked, telling us where the problems were. And we became friends and we could go down and talk to them anytime we want. Uh, later on in working with this organization, the people that told us not to go, not to go talk to these people said, this is great. Why don't more people do this? Now, look, this guy is working at a bank and he's showing us how he does stuff. But we're, we're doing this in kind of a special way. We told him to you know, imagine that you're going on vacation next week and you need to teach us how to do your job. This is called an apprenticeship style interview. He shows us how he's doing his work. He shows us, well, shows us his crazy workarounds that allow him to get things done faster. Uh, we watch what he's doing and we know there's a few things he's not doing particularly right, but uh, when, then we can figure out how to fix this, how, the, how to make this better. Now, look, the guy on the right is a product manager for a line of portable printers. The guy on the left front is from China. He builds portable designs and well, arranges to manufacture portable printers. He doesn't manufacture them himself. The guy in the middle will take pictures of you and your family in front of the Gateway Monument in Mumbai for 30 rupees. He's a street photographer. That is his portable printer. It does not look very portable to me. When the guy on the left goes back to China and he's designing and he has to design with well, rugged printers or printers that are durable or, and printers that are heat resistant, it means a lot more to him after he has spent time with people in the hot sun all day. Uh, durability and heat means something different. Look, I've got lots of pictures of people doing this work. Uh, and one of the things I work hard to do is trying to get try to get everybody involved, not product managers and researchers. Guy on the right is a product manager. Person on the left is someone being interviewed. Guy interviewing him is actually a QA person on the team. Now, normally, team members, this isn't their primary job. They they help out doing this and we expect them to, to take notes and, well, build empathy and bring that back into the team. But that QA person over time got really good at doing the interviews and Jack, the product manager said, go ahead, you, you do this stuff. Now, uh, this guy is Sharif. He's an old friend of mine. He's the guy at a company called Atlassian that I've known the longest. 
I met him when he was a product manager for well for one team. Now he's over a big group of product managers. By now, you might have read this quote that I don't do customer interviews without having a developer in the room. At companies like Atlassian, it, it went from a good idea to best practice. Look, it's hard to forget customers if you've actually met them. Data is not empathy. Now, let me give you one last thing, and then I kind of want to summarize here. Talking, I promise you, meeting and talking to your customers will shift your head. If you meet and talk to customers, you're going to have a hard time not forgetting uh, those problems they've got and not worrying about solving those problems or those outcomes. It changes every discussion in the middle here. And look, the, the last thing I'd ask you to do is pay attention to those actual outcomes. I, I work with lots of teams and they ship lots of stuff. And the first thing I'll ask them to do is say, great, uh, that big feature you just shipped or just finished, I want to know, well, first off, what the actual effort was. How long did it take? I'll put these things in a continuum of things that were fast, took days or a, a week or weeks or a month or months or a quarter uh, or quarters. And... Well, for people doing agile development, these aren't stories that go into a sprint. It usually takes a lot of stories to add up to a whole feature. And remember, we need a whole feature capability in order for people to use it and actually get an outcome. So pay attention to those whole things. I'll have people, as soon as they finish something and it's shippable or it's ready to ship, I'll ask them to do a little bit of reflection. How big was it relative to other things? And how do we do on that? Uh, did we predict it was going to take two weeks and it took uh, a month? Uh, if it took longer, uh, mark it. Say the, talk about the things that were, were challenged or took longer than expected. Now, one of the things you'll notice, of course, is that the challenge things are always bigger. That they got big by <laughs> being challenged. And you'll also start to notice the bigger things are, the more likely they are to be challenged. And then another characteristic of contemporary software products is there are no more big changes. There aren't big changes going into Zoom or Amazon Prime or Netflix or things like that. Rather, lots of small changes come out. They're almost imperceptible a lot of times. So more small changes is a good idea, at least for contemporary software products. Now, look, I want to do use that top axis or the vertical axis for the actual outcome. And remember, when you just finish something, uh, well, the outcome is I don't know. Because we don't know uh, what the outcome is until things actually come out. Now, uh, once they ship and customers can see it, try it and use it and keep using it, now we've got a continuum up here where at the very top is the awesome zone and at the very bottom is the awful zone. And somewhere in the middle is the, the stuff I'll call, meh, uh, it's not as good as we hoped or expected it would be, but it's not awful. Now, as teams work, uh, first thing they'll notice is how long it takes to get an outcome. You don't get them at the end of a two-week sprint if you're using an agile process. It often takes weeks or months. If you worked at Atlassian and you built Jira, they've learned it usually takes two to three sprints to see if people are actually using the features they put in. So at minimum six weeks, so a month and a half to three months is what they look for. It's about then that they can start to see if those features actually got used, if people like them. Some of the features you build are going to be awesome. 
uh, some are going to end up in awful. By the way, you get the fastest feedback from awful. If you ship something that's awful, you will find out almost right away. People will tell you that sucked and, uh, and you'll have to apologize and roll it back or pull it back uh, or find someone to blame. Uh, that's the way that works. If you do this for any length of time, you will see the thing that I mentioned early on that most of our ideas, well, suck is maybe strong. Most of our ideas do not work out as well as we expected. You'll generally find about a third of the ideas end up here at the top in that awesome zone. A third were as good as we thought they would be when we built them. And the remaining two thirds are somewhere below that. Now, if we land somewhere below that, now we have a choice to make. Can we iterate this towards awesome? Can we continue to improve that thing until it gets up there or we can leave it there? That's what managing a product is, specifically a tech product. That's one of the things we, we do with these things. I, I work with companies uh, to build uh, to build software and I'll use the term build to learn versus build to earn, where build to earn means we're going to get return on investment or business impact. And build to learn means now our only goal with building this thing is so that we can learn something. I'm going to play just a few minutes from a, a, a video of well Spotify. Remember, remember that Daniel Eka guy at Spotify and they're talking about their process and well, it's just a couple minutes. What he, what Henrik Nieberg, the person in this video, is is going to say is the, the process they go through to make sure that they're building something worth building, and they eventually do, and they release it. But I want you to listen closely to who they release it to, and then what happens after that. And if you're really listening closely, what gets held back from those things? Our product development approach is based on lean startup principles, and is summarized by the mantra: think it build it, ship it, tweak it. The biggest risk is always building the wrong thing. So before deciding to build a new product or major feature, we try to inform ourselves with research. Do people actually want this? Does it solve a real problem for them? Then we define a narrative, kind of like a press release or elevator pitch showing off the benefits. For example, radio you can save or follow your favorite artist. We also define hypotheses. How will this feature impact user behavior and our core metrics? Will they share more music? Will they log in more often? And we build various prototypes and have people try them out to get a sense of what the feature might feel like and how people react. Once we feel confident this thing is worth building, we go ahead and build an MVP, minimum viable product. Just enough to fulfill the narrative, but far from feature complete. You might call it the minimum lovable product. The next stage of learning happens once we put something into production. So we want to get there as quickly as possible. We release the MVP to just a few percent of all users and use techniques like A-B testing to measure the impact and test our hypotheses. The squad monitors the data and continues tweaking and redeploying until they see the desired impact. Then they gradually roll out to the rest of the world while taking the time needed to sort out practical stuff like operational issues and scaling. By the time the product or feature is fully rolled out, we already know it's a success because if it isn't, we don't roll it out. Impact is always more important than velocity you probably know the punchlines because they're right there on the slide, that we ship less than perfect uh, solutions, just enough to fulfill the narrative, but far from feature complete, things that aren't completely awesome and things less than we know we need to ship if we were going to ship this to everyone. But we're shipping it to a small subset of our audience. If you're a B2C company like Spotify, that might be thousands of users, but it is not millions of users. If you're a B2B company, 
uh, you may usually pick four to six customers and then some number of users there. So it may be hundreds of people using it, but not hundreds of thousands. When we're shipping to a small audience, uh, these we look for people who are early adopters, people who are try, will try things before they're ready for prime time. And this is not exactly a beta where we ship it and we hope everything works out and then we scale it after we, we roll it out to everybody when we get evidence it works out or after we fix bugs. No, we're going to keep iterating that until it is awesome. That's the way it works. And we're not afraid to kill something if it doesn't. We leave out functionality because it's a small audience. We don't worry so much about scale and performance. So we pull a lot out for that. And we definitely don't worry about a lot of go-to-market things, the stuff we need to actually support it at scale in production. And we don't worry about the stuff that customer service will need to have to support it or sales or marketing or other things like that. We are shipping to learn. Look, you'll need the tech infrastructure to do that. This is what companies like Amazon and Netflix and Spotify have had for years. We're just starting to get good at this, but good good DevOps practice will uh, will give you that. The mantra for people who do this kind of work is nail it before you scale it. The, the anti-patterns that I see are scale it before you nail it. That means we ship something that's scaled, maybe to a subset of people, and then it gets it's super painful when we have to pull things out of it or change things because we paid a lot to build those things. We built them at scale. The other anti-pattern I see is nail it and forget to scale it, meaning we ship it to a small group of customers. They love it. And we say, that's great. Now send it to everyone. Well, the other people we're sending it to are not early adopters. They're a little less forgiving. Uh, they're going to ask for more. Uh, it, maybe we didn't actually worry about the scaling. It falls down on performance. And well, if you didn't worry about the go-to market stuff, people inside your organization are going to complain. Look, let's summarize all of this. If you're building a product, how do you see yourself? Are you a product owner? Do you feel like you're responsible for the outcomes? Do you understand your customers? And that was that, that's what matters to you? Or is your biggest concern whether you're building what you were asked to build and the quality of what you built is great. If your business sees you as a service provider, start by being a better doctor. Identify, understand, and build empathy with your real customers. Focus on those real outcomes and release to learn or build to learn. Build things, prototypes, working releases, things that allow you to, to validate that you really are building something that is going to get the impact that you want. Now, that's what I needed to say, and I'm going to wrap up here, but I'm mindful that I'm standing here talking to you inside of SEP. SEP does sell time and materials, but I've known the people at SEP for a long time because they're trying to do things different. They, their differentiator is this. It's focusing on product success. And you'll see them act, actually acting a lot more like a doctor. For people that are SAP clients, they sometimes get annoyed because SAP may will question them on whether they're building the right thing. Uh, well, basically, they want to understand what problems they're solving before tre treating them. So if I drop that metaphor, SAP puts effort into understanding that their customers and users beliefs their well their their clients customers and users beliefs they test those things before building things look if you, and i work with a lot of 
other companies like SEP. This is the challenge for them. If they're trying to help their customers build good products, well, their, their customers might not naturally do these things. And look, they may not want to pay for these things. It, but look, if these matter, if you're hiring someone who creates products for you, look for somebody who does work a little bit more like a doctor, who's not just focusing on building what you ask for reliably, but who's focusing on building successful products. That's it. That's a lot. It's almost an hour. Uh, good stuff, Jeff, uh, as, as usual. So uh, we have some questions. Um, just be before we get to that, some people, if they need to leave, they can, they can drop. Uh, again, Kelly will um, post the video on um, our events page on scp.com, but we'll also send a link out to, um, to everybody that registered. Um, if you haven't read Jeff's book, Highly recommended. Um, can't say enough good things about it. Uh, we give away tons to, to customers, um, and I, I use mine all the time as a reference. So, and if you're trying to do this stuff and you're not sure where to start, Jeff is a great resource and someone to help your organization. He, you can reach out to him. That he has his stuff on the screen there directly. If you want uh, an invite or want to talk to to somebody more about specifically where how he might help. Feel free to reach out to me. Uh, you can respond to the emails that you got about the talk today and uh, happy to get back to you and sort of chat maybe about how or where Jeff can help. So with that, Jeff, yet first question was uh, from someone who creates um, B2B sort of back office systems. And they sort of said, how would you suggest dealing with clients or, or, or with folks that, that need to know how much it'll cost and when it will be delivered before they commit to actually sort of building it? The way I handle it is the same way I would ask. It's funny, I, I, I kind of did some gouging at service providers, but the way I would handle it is the same way you hire someone to remodel your kitchen or do service provider work. If you are hiring somebody to remodel your kitchen, you start with a budget in mind. This is what it's worth to us, and oftentimes a time frame in mind, and then work backwards from there. What can we get for this budget and in this time frame? Um, I, uh, you know, if I was remodeling a kitchen, I might start with what I've got in mind, and there might be some back and forth. But I know that when I finalize the budget for for my kitchen remodeling. I haven't made all the choices yet. I know that things are unpredictable, predictably unpredictable things are going to happen. There's going to be challenges. Things are going to cost a little bit more than I expected. I'm going to make choices that cost a little bit more. Uh, uh, and so I, I plan on making changes all the way through. If I choose, uh, if I choose better flooring for my kitchen, I don't say, well, darn, I can't have countertops now. No, I, I choose cheaper countertops. Uh, you, we work together on this thing. We both work towards a budget. Yes, if they need to know what they're going to get uh, and why, uh, or why and how long, agree in on broad strokes, and both of you work together to meet that budget. That's the best I've got. Uh, and, and by the way, if people want me to know exactly, if you're building something custom and people uh, need to know exactly what they're get going to get and exactly how long it's going to take, tell them to go hire a kitchen remodeler and ask them how that went. Uh, it doesn't work in the real world so well. <laughs> hey, uh, along the same lines, when it comes to building to learn versus building to earn, 
you know, there's a lot of folks who are in, in a situation where they can't turn off the sort of build to earn switch yeah. in favor of just building to learn. How, how do you, or what recommendations would you have about balancing sort of those, those two pieces? What have you seen work? Um, that's a, that's a bit of a long story there. There's a lot to talk about there. Uh, product discovery is the work that we do to understand what we're building. And, and we do a lot of things in order to in order to learn, to be confident. We understand our problems and customers want our solution and can use it, all those things. And, and we even do product discovery to confirm that we can build this thing on time. In agile development, discovery work uh, about the technology is often called a spike. So we do that in agile development and call it that. Uh, Chris, your question was, what do you do with people that have that mindset that everything kind of needs to be built to scale? Um, I don't know if I have a good one. I don't, <laughs> when I'm working with engineers and other people that do that, we always, uh, uh, the two questions I'll alternate uh, between are, what do you need to learn right now? What's the most important for, thing for you to learn right now? And what's the cheapest, fastest way to learn that? And I can guarantee you the cheapest, fastest way to learn something is usually not build software to scale. Um, there's a couple little books. Uh, do I have one here? Yeah. A couple little books that I like. Uh, um, this book called Talking to Humans from this guy named Gift Constable. He's got another book called Testing with Humans. And they talk about product discovery stuff. Now, what I thought of this, I don't have a Testing with Humans one handy, but the Testing with Humans book has a mantra in it that if you're an engineer working on this stuff, you need to think more like a hacker and less like an engineer. You're building stuff fast to learn, not to keep. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt if you build something, you find out it was the wrong thing to build. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a mindset. And the truth is some people don't have it and they may not be the best ones to do product discovery. Have you seen that companies that are that are balancing building to learn versus building to earn that you know twenty percent of their time is build to learn and eighty percent is earn or do they go a hundred and then they sw switch over they go from learn to earn or is it both all the time? How do they balance the two? Uh, so a lot of it depends on what kind of what they're building. Uh, Chris, I know you guys build things that are more project centric where it takes quite a bit of building before, uh, well, if we're building a first release of anything, it usually takes a fair bit of discovery work and it's pretty pure discovery work uh, followed by a, a bunch of building work. And there may be a little bit of discovery work while you're building uh, to get out those, some of those unanswered questions. So first release is a very different thing. Once you've got a release out there in the market and you switch over to continuous improvement mode, and that, again, that works if you've got something that is software, um, and even if you've got hybrid products that are mixtures of hardware and software, and this is going to make me sound snooty, but I, have, I just bought a used Tesla last year, and that thing gets a couple upgrades every month. Uh, in fact, the last upgrade changed my dashboard, and I cannot figure out how to turn on my windshield wipers anymore, which feels like a safety hazard, but uh, super annoying. Uh, uh, and so th that's a hybrid product. Uh, I know that Tesla pushes upgrades down to their app and to the dashboard of my car. Uh, uh, 
um, at least a couple times a month. Uh, it, when you're in continuous improvement mode, teams doing that are continuously building, doing a, a, you see that 80, 20, 20% of their time is spent on discovery and 80% of their time is spent on delivery, mostly because delivery work takes longer to build things at scale. Um, again, depends on where your product is in its life cycle. If it's brand new, you're trying to find product market fit, you're going to invest more time in discovery and less in delivery. If your product is mature, those ratios change. If your product is very mature, you may not have to spend much time at all on discovery, maybe a bit and more time on delivery. And the interesting, the weird thing is if your product is very mature, uh, you have to spend more money building up a product that is immature than you do on a product that's mature. (laughs) Immature products actually take more more manpower, more person power to get up and running, more discovery and more building. Yeah, Chris, I don't know if I answered that question, but yeah. yep, no, that that was good. Uh, yeah, another the, question. The answer is always it depends, and, and it depends on where your product is in its life cycle and what kind of product it is. Uh, what What would you say to encourage people, or have it uh, maybe some words of wisdom when they want to take developers to visit customers? but leadership pushes back because it takes too much time or they're worried about taking too much money. Any advice for? That's short for just do it. Uh, my, <laughs> the thing I've always done is be a little bit sneaky about it. I used to build software for brick and mortar retailers. And uh, I can remember I had a, uh, I just did it. I, I didn't understand how they did things. So I uh, would, phone up a customer and go, uh, customers were often in the building and we were talking to them anyway. And I would ask, can I go down and uh, take a look at your shop and how you guys are doing things? And I would just do it. And I would always bring a developer with me. Now I can remember a guy that was my VP of development. Uh, he took over as a CIO at my local university and I was in doing work and he introduced me by saying, uh, uh, this guy would go out and talk directly to customers. When he first started doing it, I, I didn't know what he was doing. And I was ready to tell him uh, to stop that. And that was a bad, <laughs> don't stop wasting time doing that until I saw the results. Uh, generally speaking, when people start to see the results, things change. And uh, I can tell you that uh, we used to go live with a product and I would always put a developer there, one of the developers who would worked on the team in a customer site while we went live. Nothing uh, is more heart-wrenching than watching somebody use a product you built. It never goes the way you expect. And when a team member comes back to the office, nothing is more motivating than wanting to help people solve a problem. That kind of puts the purpose into them. And the the dirty secret here is the developers that care about what they're doing way outperform developers who are apathetic or don't know. So uh, this stuff always pays dividends. Now, if you're told not to do it, I would try and just do it. But maybe try and do it off work hours. <laughs> so maybe start doing it by uh, sneaking it in later. And if you're trying to convince developers, don't. Don't try and convince them. Look for developers that are early adopters for this way of thinking who are interested. They're the, pe- they're the people to start with. And if I, I promise if they go out, uh, that's going to change the way they think and work. And it has the effect of creating FOMO uh, meaning you know, the developers that were out and talk, they'll talk about it and other developers will feel like they're missing out unless they go out and do this too. It's, it's self-reinforcing, but the problem is just getting started. Well, again, Jeff, appreciate your time so much today. Um, 
and sharing your wisdom. It's always good. Uh, I always learn something new. Um, with that, we are going to um, sort of close out today. Again, if you like to get in touch with Jeff, reach out to him, Jeff Patton and associates.com um, or reach out to us. Again, you can respond to the emails that Kelly sent and we're happy to sort of uh, make a connection. Again, thanks everyone for being here. Appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. We'll see you, Jeff.